Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, stock market and the economy and what the heck is going on with all of that. And so uh, to help us with that conversation, uh, we have uh, Vern Hobart, who is a uh, consultant, writer, investor, uh, white poet, warlord, uh, among other things. So, uh, Vern, welcome to the program. Hey, it's great to be here. Oh, and I should also say you have uh, like your own subscription based newsletter, which has uh, commentary, investment analysis and other things, which is the diff. That's uh, right. The diff. Yeah. Diff.substack.com. Diff.substack.com. And then that's, is that one F or two? In that is diff? two Fs. Two Fs. Okay. All right. Very, very, very key. Okay. So uh, the, I wanted to have you on because, you know, I look around and, and you know, the market, uh, the market's actually down a little bit today when we're recording this on Tuesday, uh, April the 21st. But, uh, there was about a month in late February and early March where uh, markets were not, you know, the, the U.S. stock markets and also other countries uh, were not doing very well. I think I think they lost about a, the Dow lost about a third of its value. And since then, uh, it's kind of made about uh, half of that back. And uh, it doesn't seem like things are going too bad. If you were to just look at the stock market, it doesn't really seem like things are doing too badly. However, if you were to look at any other uh, source of news, you see things about, uh, you know, there's going to be 20% unemployment, huge contractions in the economy, uh, bread lines, you know, chaos, riots. Uh, so I wanted to talk, you know, like, what's the deal there? What, what's going on? And, um, but it, maybe to kind of set the stage, uh, it might be good to talk about well, why would we expect uh, the stock market to reflect these broader trends anyway? I mean, the stock market, you know, that's basically, uh, you know, you, you have some investors that are just kind of moving money around. And so maybe it makes perfect sense that uh, that would not uh, reflect the, the real economy. So what like what's the theory for why we should care about the stock market as an indicator indicator for the broader economy? Yeah, so I'd start by saying um Prices, price movements, always extremely complicated, and uh, now especially complicated. So um, there are a lot of things going on. Like at one level, what the market is looking at is just the net impact of either COVID-19 or the countermeasures to it. And you can really debate which of those the market is reacting to. Like clearly there was a period in January and February where there was this increasing drumbeat of negative news. And yet most stock prices were not reacting at all to that. People were worried, but not panicked. And then um, starting around when the numbers in Italy got really bad, the narrative shifted from this is a China problem, but we're getting decoupled from China. So maybe it's not our problem to no, this is a global problem. And perhaps countries that are not authoritarian technocracies will, uh, will do a worse job of dealing with it. So that's what got us to the market drop. And then the question is, why did the market go up? Like, 
at one level, this does feel incredibly apocalyptic. Um, you know, we're, we're expecting probably the worst economy since the Great Depression. Perhaps uh, there will be quarters that are worse than that. So the worst ever sequential changes in GDP, um, huge increases in unemployment, waves of bankruptcy. But of course, the government is trying to intervene to mitigate some of the effects of that. And when you look at how the government intervenes and where it intervenes, that explains some of the gap um, between what the stock market is saying and what the broader economy is doing. So um, the, the first institution that really reacted to what was going on um, in the market was the Fed. And there's a reason for that. So the Fed is um, fairly independent, fairly unconstrained in how quickly it can act, but very constrained in what it can do. So it's mechanically set up to be very good at, um, at affecting the supply of money, especially as it's used to buy liquid assets and then um, actually intervening in those liquid asset markets. But when you get from liquid assets, which can be um, typically, it's treasuries, um, generally shorter duration treasuries. But when the Fed is getting really, really active, it can be pretty much anything where you could call up someone at a trading desk and get a quote. Um, those assets tend to react pretty much immediately to what the Fed is doing. But the Fed, while it's set up to to buy um, treasuries, to buy corporate bonds, even to buy um, junk bond ETFs or to at least backstop that market, it's not set up to extend credit to individuals or small businesses. So we have this sort of lagged effect where the first group that got bailed out was um, big business in the financial sector, but that's just because that group has the pretty much the most competent and effective government agencies um, that are responsible for keeping it healthy. And then you have the um, the fiscal side, so the CARES Act and um, the just ongoing efforts to do some combination of backstopping the consumer through higher unemployment, backstopping small business through easier access to credit, which um, may convert into grants depending on how things go. And that just that takes longer. Um, it takes longer both because Congress has to do it rather than the Fed. So you're talking about a committee of 435 people rather than you know a dozen people on a conference call. So it just it takes a lot longer for the details to get hashed out. And then to actually implement that, you do need to somehow get money to banks, get those banks to get money to the individual pizzerias, or get that money to um, the states that can then use that money to provide unemployment benefits. And then it turns out there are all of these technical issues there, like um, because a lot of the welfare state was um, was automated very, very early in the history of computing, it's also very, very obsolete. And all the people who know how those systems worked are retired or dead. So we sort of have to reverse engineer 1960s era computing technology in order to implement 2020s fiscal policies. Oh, well, that, that, that seems like a joy for whoever has that job. Um, I, so, uh, before we continue, I, I realized that, uh, I did not ask you what I often ask uh, many of our guests is just to talk a little bit about your background. Uh, I of course describe some of what you do now, but, uh, I believe you got a, a fair, like, yeah, I describe you as an investor, but I think you, you got a pretty early start in investing, right? That's right. I um, I read a Warren Buffett biography at a pretty formative age. Um, I think it was the summer before freshman year of high school. And it I was always a nerdy kid. And the Buffett biography was just a story about someone who spent all day locked in his room, 
reading annual reports and uh, became a billionaire. And I decided that since I already spent a lot of my day locked in my room reading, this was a pretty simple transition. So I started reading annual reports and doing investing and talking about stocks online. Um, my career path has been kind of weird since then. So um, I actually got my first job. I dropped out of college and got my first job in online marketing, but I was writing a blog about stocks. And in, um, in 2010, 2011, there was this renaissance in tech stocks, in dot-com specifically, where uh, for a long time, it had been just internet stock nuclear winters. So the vast majority of internet companies had gone under or been merged out of existence, or the companies were just the walking dead. There were a handful of big companies like um, Amazon, eBay, and then Google, but um, there were not enough companies for it to be reasonable for someone to cover internet stocks as a full-time job. But Starting a couple years after the financial crisis, more internet companies started going public. So a lot of these companies were smaller companies like, um, like Shutterfly, for example, and um, Demand Media, which owned eHow.com. And so what I started doing was writing, doing write-ups on my blog of how these companies work, how they market themselves, because I was doing a lot of marketing, how you'd use marketing data products to uh, to assess how these companies were performing. So to take an example like Demand Media, they own eHow.com. Basically, their entire business was exploiting weaknesses in Google's search engine algorithm. So they could write an article on some really, really narrow specific topic, like how to file late taxes in Texas. And if it was a really specific topic, when someone Googled that term, they'd come to the eHow article. The beauty of this model was the worse the article was, the more the interest, the more likely it was that the most interesting content on that page was ads, and the ads were also served by Google. So <laughs> essentially, yeah, they were. It was this, this perfect. It was like halfway between a symbiote and a parasite. Um, it was a, a revenue symbiote, a product parasite. And so the entire question for investors is, how long will it take for Google to kill this thing? And I realized that if I am helping people with marketing campaigns, and one of the ways that I do that is track who ranks well for what in Google, that I could just point those same bots to ehow.com, see where they rank, see how their rankings change, and then see what Google is doing to, uh, to excise this thing from its, uh, its system. So that, that got me on the radar of uh, a few people in the financial industry. And through that, I made the, um, the career transition from being basically a copywriter at a digital ad agency to being an analyst at a hedge fund on SAC Capital, since renamed Point72, very large, very successful fund. Very interesting work experience because the, the people there are just exceptionally smart and um, exceptionally good at teasing out what details matter. And I think that's, that's a skill that investors acquire because the whole when investors are argumentative people, they are um, like the entire stock market is basically an argument between people who think that this stock should go up, people who think it should go down. They meet at the middle when one of them buys and the other one sells. So the whole thing is this ongoing argument, but it's not like a political argument. It's not like an argument over a social issue because you actually want to figure out what the crux of the disagreement is and then figure out who will, what information would make you realize you were right or wrong. So it's basically, it's like a normal argument, except you sort of get paid to change your mind if you're wrong, and that makes it much healthier. So it's just a really good... Um, and there are actual for consequences for being wrong, which there never yeah, are on the internet, for example. <laughs> it's incredible. It's true. Um, there was an interesting piece by Paul Graham recently on the, on the topic of consequences for being wrong, 
where he pointed out that the reason that the COVID-19 epidemic has made so many people question expert institutions is that pundits and commentators have been wrong all the time, but they're usually wrong about something that happens 10 years from now. So we'll be greeted as liberators. Well, it takes a pretty long time to figure out that we were not in fact greeted as liberators. You know, robots will take all the jobs in 10 years. Well, 10 years from now, no one's going to remember that you said that. And with COVID-19, since it grows at 30% a day, you find out really, really quickly who was right and who was wrong. So it is the same process that should be happening generally, except that it's happening on a fast enough scale that people don't forget what somebody said a week or two ago. Yeah, well, I, I'm I'm actually a little bit more pessimistic of whether there will be any consequences. Uh, <laughs> we'll have to see. Uh, but certainly, uh, y- you're, you're right that uh, the whole thing has played out on a much quicker time scale uh, so that, you know, whereas before it might have taken a long time and people would have forgotten, who cares? Uh, now, what you say today could be uh, stupid, you know, obviously wrong uh, a week from now. And then you have to go back and try and uh, stealthily edit what you had previously written <laughs> to change it. To make yeah, it seem- yeah, there's, there's a lot of um, clever self-editing. I think people are getting a little bit better about hedging and about instead of saying this will happen, saying if X, Y, and Z don't change, then this will happen, where X, Y, and Z are extremely uncertain and subjective things. So a lot of people have switched from being in this position of always saying I'm going to be right to saying yeah, well, in retrospect, I wasn't technically strictly wrong. I might have been right about that after all. Now, in terms of the long-term effects, I think you're you're definitely right in the sense that the base case is that nothing ever changes. It always feels like some cataclysm is going to change everything, um, and the cataclysms rarely do. The world is just not like the post-9/11 world is is different in the sense that it takes longer to get onto a plane, but it is not that massively different in terms of our priorities in terms of our political structure, like literally the first huge political action that took place after 9-11, the first big policy decision or big foreign policy decision post 9-11 was the, well, I guess was Afghanistan and then the the run up to Iraq. So we basically reran the 90s after everything changed in 2001. So I think that is that is a decent base case that there's just so much momentum for whatever the established way of doing things is that it's just really hard to shake it. And um, it is, it's possible to articulate a story where that turns out differently, but what seems to happen is that reform of whatever kind ends up with some kind of partisan coding. And now we have this weird situation where Trump, there's sort of a war between, an intra-conservative war between Trump fans and Trumpist, the Trumpist ideology, where Trumpism tells you be skeptical of China and be skeptical of immigration and be skeptical of globalization. So Trumpism is kind of Corona-proofing your country, but Trump himself was actually a lot more focused on the S&P than on the core tenets of ideological Trumpism. So um, he ended up sort of betraying his base in order to um, cooperate with the broader Republican movement. And and that meant that the there's a sort of inter-Republican civil war. They will presumably line up on on one side or another when Democrats try to do something. And that's just a recipe for continued stasis. So that's probably how it plays out, is that there's no political coalition in favor of truly sweeping changes. So we just get more of the same. Yeah. And uh, my my thinking is, particularly if you're talking about 
you know, people in journalism or politics is that, you know, you can, you can punish, uh, you can punish a few people for being outside the norm. But uh, when you have too high a number of people who are all wrong together, uh, then it becomes impossible to really punish any of them. Uh, the New York Times, for example, had a story, they ran a story uh, a couple days ago, which was all about how uh, this this guy had uh, had gotten on a cruise. This old guy had gotten on a cruise in early March and got, ended up getting the coronavirus and dying. And he was a big Fox News fan. So the article was like, you know, they were listening. He was listening to Fox News, and so he died. And then it turned out that the the person who wrote the article, the journalist, had also uh, at the same during the same time made dismissive comments about the coronavirus. You know, so it's like. You can't, it's just, there's a sort of uh, mutual assured destruction element to the whole thing uh, uh, that, you know, if everybody's guilty, no one's guilty. Or it, even if, even if actually, let me correct that. If 90% of people guilt, are, are guilty, then it, you know, no one's guilty. And even if 10%, even there were some people who got it right, but it, not enough for it to matter. Yeah, it, it seems like there there will probably be a search for some sort of scapegoat. And that does have a partisan tinge where the the two scapegoating narratives that have coalesced are one, it's Donald Trump's fault, or two, it's Xi Jinping's fault. And it's really easy to see how that shakes out politically. But yeah, really um, a huge fraction of people bear some level of responsibility for not paying enough attention. Of course, for most people, it's not their job. So it's right. really a huge fraction of elites who are a small fraction of the population. They were all too dismissive. Um, they all thought it was SARS or MERS again, like a lot of people are panicking, but nothing bad will actually happen to us. And then they turned out to be wrong this time. But yeah, they, they will all be um, not doing soul searching, um, doing the opposite of soul searching, doing as little soul searching as possible, but as much uh, research into who else said something slightly more dismissive around the same time that they did that they can point to as the true culprit. Yeah. All right. So let, let's get back to the, the stock market. Um, is you said something that I, I liked about the stock market being an argument between different people, you know, some people saying the things, uh, it's going to go up, it's going to go down, this is going to happen. So what, I mean, if you just look at where the argument is right now, what is, what is kind of the, the message that the market is sending? Is it, is it saying that the expectation is for a uh, quick recovery? Uh, is, it, is it sort of saying that, well, uh, parts of the economy are going to be okay and other parts are not? What, what's, what's, kinda, what's your sense of uh, where, what, they are anticip what, what the market is anticipating there? Yeah, I think I think it's the latter. I think the the general expectation is that the well, the market is really good at telling you what will happen to very large companies. And over the last 10 years or so, the U.S. stock market in particular has gotten a lot more weighted to more global high margin technology companies, which will go through this process in a very different way from the average company. So in some sense, the market is giving you a really accurate read of what a tiny proportion of the working population and what a small but still meaningful proportion of the economy is going to experience. So, and then you have the other, the other read, which is that since the Fed can support 
asset prices for anything for which there is a market, um, those asset prices are going to outperform the underlying fundamentals. So it's not like the Fed is going to backstop someone if um, if Pizzeria A decides to buy out their competitor Pizzeria B and form a, a two-store chain. That's not really something that the Fed can support. Whereas if a um, large hotel company, for example, decides to issue a bunch of junk bonds and buy out a competing hotel company, that is something where the the there's a direct conduit between the Fed's ability to create credit and uh, the market's ability to buy those assets and support those trades. So I think part of what it really shows is this bifurcation between different parts of the economy that um, that the U.S., because we've um, because our big companies have more or less conquered the world and we have such a huge fraction of the biggest companies, the, the most valuable brands, the highest margin companies, um, the, the companies that file the most patents, that because of that, because we've done so well as a country creating these companies, the companies have become less American and more more global. And at the same time, the U.S. financial system is the key part of the global financial system. Like every, basically, anytime there's bilateral trade between two countries, neither of which has a commonly used currency, they both default to dollars. And um, money that gets raised in a given country um, that's not raised in that country's currency is very likely to be raised in dollars. So there's just um, there's a lot of dollar centricity and a lot of big company centricity that that transcends the fact that those are American institutions. So at one level, it, it means that people like Mark Zuckerberg and Satya Nadella and all these guys have a, a huge responsibility because they actually have global companies, global brands, and um, they are the economic shock absorber where they can withstand a lot of uh, a lot of losses they can withstand um, spending a lot of money because they have a lot of cash on hand and other smaller businesses really can't I just I wouldn't see the market as a good read on what will happen to small businesses because the gap between small business and the stock market is also the gap between what the Fed has a very easy time bailing out and what the Fed has a very hard time bailing out. So one thing you could say is the market is actually discounting or is betting on the probability that um, that the future is just going to be a lot more corporate, that a lot of small companies will go under, they'll be replaced by big chains, that a lot of um, a lot of overhead, human overhead is going to be replaced by software. And all of that is good for profit margins, good for the S&P, but uh, not necessarily the policy outcome that anyone would have wanted. I, I don't. I don't disagree with any of that. Um, you also mentioned uh, the the cash reserves, the larger companies having a lot of cash. Isn't isn't that also something that is uh, sort of supporting the valuations in the capital markets? That a lot of the larger companies really do have substantial cash reserves right now. And isn't that I mean, obviously that's one means that someone's going to price their stock? Isn't isn't that part of what's going on? So that's part of it. What I would. Focus on there is not so much that people are buying these large cap tech stocks because they're looking at the cash on hand and saying this is this is the best way to get cash because it's, it's easier to just have cash. None of them are trading near what the value of just their cash on hand is. But it does mean that those companies have liquidity. It means they have flexibility. It means that since they don't have to raise money in the event that they do raise money, it's going to be on very favorable terms. Whereas if you look at a company like um, Carnival Cruise Lines or Airbnb, so both travel focused companies both companies that are currently burning a lot of cash, they both borrowed money, but they they both paid over 10% for those loans. So 
they are um, they're definitely in a tough position. They can't really absorb a lot of losses, although Airbnb at least is trying to do so. So they're they're paying part of the money that hosts lost from canceled bookings and um, sort of providing a backstop there. But um, Facebook is in a much better position to do things like extend credit to advertisers, um, so they they can keep on advertising, but pay for their pay for their ads six months from now or twelve months from now rather than right away. Um, Amazon, interestingly enough, is not doing that on cloud computing, and um, it's it's not a huge sector of the global economy, but it's an interesting sector of the the tech economy, which is companies that use cloud computing on the back end and have some kind of consumer facing app because they're they're in a really tough situation right now where usage is way up which means their cloud computing bill is way way up but um, their revenue is down so they end up with uh, with this terrible situation where they set records for usage in March and then they set another record in April and then they run out of cash and declare bankruptcy in May and for the survivors of that, they're, they've basically spent a lot of money now in order to get market share that will stick around for a long time. So someone like Zoom might be in that position where their their daily active users have grown from 10 million in December to 200 million in March. And um, they certainly won't stay at 200 million forever, but a lot of people who tried Zoom for the first time because they had to are going to keep on using it because they like it. Right. What about, what about this idea that... Um... Uh, maybe one of the reasons that we're not seeing as big of a sell-off is there's probably not too many places to go. Uh, you know, so I know there was a big sell-off earlier, you know, with the idea of people wanted to cash out of the market a little bit, but with interest rates as low as they are, with the government spending as, as high as it is, is there really any, you know, any, how should I say this, any safe investments out there? Is there any sector uh, other than maybe some of the obvious and, you know, pharmaceutical or something where they might uh, score big on a, uh, on a vaccine? It, it, is there really any safe place out there uh, for investors to be putting their, their capital? Uh, no, it's, it's all pretty scary. There's, there's least unsafe, but other than cash, <laughs> it's, it's hard to come up with something that's truly safe. Now the cash part I think it's useful to keep in mind that when people go to cash, it's not not strictly that they expect a higher return. That they've they've run the numbers and they've said, mm-hmm. "I'm getting you know zero percent in cash," but I think the market will return some will return minus one percent over the next ten years or something like that. It's more that um, if there's a cash shortage, anytime there's a mm-hmm. anytime there's a, a collapse in asset prices, since the leverage that people use is a fixed dollar amount and the assets they own are variable. It basically is equivalent to selling the dollar short when you borrow money. And when the value of those assets goes down, you can just reverse that perspective and say it's actually a short squeeze in dollars. So everyone who owes money desperately wants to get dollars. Everyone who is owed money also wants those people to sell their collateral, convert it to dollars, and pay back the debt. And that dynamic is something that um, that has become more important as the economy has gotten more financialized, but it's also something that central banks have become much more aware of. So you could tell a story of 2008, for example, where you say that what happened was banks made bad loans, they bought subprime mortgages, and those mortgages defaulted, and that was the problem. But really, the problem was actually that they, the banks were funding their complicated credit-related products by borrowing money extremely short term, basically overnight, continuously. And as soon as the value of those complicated credit products became uncertain, not necessarily impaired, just 
harder to estimate, it was really hard to borrow um, 30 times your equity to buy them. So that unwind was why the um, comparatively small losses in actual subprime securities led to enormous losses in the market overall and led to a, a huge deceleration in economic activity. But that problem is a problem that central banks do not want to face again. So that's another way to explain why the Fed was so proactive was that they all remember 2008 and they don't just remember Lehman weekend and just the chaos of the market crashing. They remember the summer of 2008 when the economy actually looked a little wobbly and it was clear that subprime was a big deal. But if you ran the numbers, you looked at default rates and you looked at how much capital banks had, you could say, this is going to be a couple bad quarters and um, maybe some banks will cut their dividends, but nobody's going under. Meanwhile, oil was actually going way up that summer. So some central banks were actually more concerned with inflation in the summer of 2008 than they were with uh, collapse in asset prices. So there was a pretty serious debate about raising rates, even into Lehman Weekend, basically. So um, there was this, this massive overshoot where the... Um, the financial problem got worse much faster than central banks anticipated and because of that it uh, it got much more it was much more catastrophic than it had to be and this time they don't want that to happen but um, this time the problem is not irresponsible banks and crazy high leverage the problem is actually this totally exogenous thing that is having real world effects on the economy it's not just messing up somebody's spreadsheets it's actually causing people to stay home, a lot of them, and for some of them to get sick and for some of them to die. In the last 24 hours or so, I have had uh, people warn me uh, both to be prepared and expect uh, hyperinflation in, in the United States in the near term, and also to be worried about deflation in uh, the U.S. in the near term. And uh, I'm I'm I am hopeful that both of those will not happen at the same time. <laughs> but uh, what what do you think? You know, obviously we are in kind of unprecedented waters. Uh, what do you think about the risks involved as far as inflation, deflation? You know, major monetary changes coming from uh, some of the stuff that's going on here. The near-term risk is deflation rather than inflation, although that's if you're looking at the CPI, that's more like what you would expect. If you actually look at prices you end up paying for the specific things you end up buying, it may feel like a more inflationary environment, which sounds like double talk, but it's just um, there are a bunch of forces pushing in different directions. So the, the really straightforward view of inflation and deflation is just if the money supply is growing faster than the supply of goods and services, then you have inflation and vice versa. But what typically happens and what happens more if an economy has uh, bigger balance sheets, more borrowing, et cetera, is that it's, it's not the quantity of money available. It's actually the quantity of spending power. So um, credit, like actual dollars in bank accounts plus available credit. And credit shrinks really fast. And the faster credit shrinks, the more people worry about deflation, the more people worry about borrowers being able to service debt. So it tends to feed on itself and shrink even faster. So you can view things like a crash in equity prices as a brief deflationary episode. And then you can say that since the Fed's mandate is in part to ensure price stability, that they need to reinflate price levels somewhat to offset that. 
Now, when you get into consumer products, you have a different kind of inflation that's not credit-driven. It's actually shortage-driven. So a lot of people have wanted to buy toilet paper. As it turns out, the toilet paper supply chain is very complicated. There are the um, There's office toilet paper and there's consumer toilet paper. They are different products. You can't really substitute one for the other. So you can run out of one and have way, way too much of the other. And since toilet paper has a very low value to volume ratio, the, uh, the supply chain is really, really efficient at minimizing the amount of storage space that you need. Since toilet paper consumption is historically pretty easy to predict over time, that has been a prudent thing for them to do, but it means that anytime people are hoarding it, there is an immediate shock to the system and you can't get it anywhere. Now it does get manufactured very quickly. It gets back on the shelves very quickly. I don't know of any place in the US right now that is actually experiencing a toilet paper shortage, but there are these knock-on effects of shortages where you don't really know what parts of the supply chain have been disrupted until somebody somewhere runs out of some intermediate product, whether it's spare parts for tractors or fertilizer or it's certain grades of fuel or whatever, there's there's something that isn't getting produced and it ends up causing a shortage down the line. There's uh, There's been some interesting research on this in the last few years. So one of the great natural experiments there is natural disasters, particularly earthquakes and tsunamis in Japan, because Japan has a lot of tech companies that build hardware components that are very small, but very essential for products like cell phones, computers, monitors, televisions, et cetera. And when one of those factories gets disrupted, typically the effect of the factory closing down for a couple of weeks is on GDP is pretty minimal. Like it, it does mean that they lose revenue, but then the factory reopens and they start shipping goods again and things catch up. But what often happens is that weeks or months down the line, the effects of that shortage reverberate. So maybe that factory wasn't able to ship whatever it was making for a month. And because of that, one of their customers went bankrupt. And because of that, one of that company's customers can't order um, screens for cell phones. And suddenly the, um, the cell phone, which is you know, a $500 product, is unavailable because there's no way to get the $2 screen for it. So um, that that typically means that supply chain disruptions take a long time to show up and are a lot bigger than the immediate impact. So that would that would indicate that you'd expect potentially some inflation in um, possibly consumer products, more likely some random capital goods. Um, the semi good news there is that some categories of capital goods have a lot less demand. So. If there is a shortage in um, aircraft parts, for example, there are a lot of planes on the ground that can be cannibalized for parts. So it'll be a long time before that's actually a problem. And um, with cars, car shortage, car part shortages, not a huge deal if nobody's driving. But there, there could be some some pieces of capital equipment in factories where they stop working, and it turns out you can't actually get replacement parts, and so the whole factory has to shut down until the production of those replacement parts gets ramped up again. Well, uh, based on you know your reading of the market and what's happening in the economy broader, more broadly, do you uh, what what is your thought on this idea of a V recovery? Do you think that's realistic, or what do you think we have in store for us over the coming months? Um, I'll end up making what sounds like one of those caveated predictions. So, the V recovery idea is predicated on either on some combination of a, a crash program to develop a vaccine that actually works, that actually gets a lot of people vaccinated, or B, um, 
sufficiently effective lockdowns and social distancing and other measures that actually reduce infections to zero, eliminate all clusters, such that we are a COVID-19 free country, and then we can we can be a nationwide green zone and just recover from there. And then the the other possibility, which is the most likely, but also the darkest, is that we decide that some level of excess deaths is actually acceptable and that we would rather have a lot of people die of a preventable illness than keep the economy shut down for an extended period. Um, one of the pieces of evidence in favor of possibility C is that Trump put out the, the estimate of 100,000 to 200,000 deaths, and then um, they dialed back that estimate quite a bit in the, the following weeks because social distancing actually turned out to be much more effective than anticipated. So if, um, if 60,000 deaths is a really, really positive headline, then that's actually evidence that we've pretty much been numbed to the possibility of a lot of people dying and will reopen the economy earlier than is um, epidemiologically ideal, but, um, but also early enough that not every small business in the U.S. goes bankrupt and that not everybody is um, on food stamps and getting evicted and things like that. So that's the argument for a V-shaped recovery. But since there are so many of these knock-on effects that are really hard for the government to intervene in, um, really hard for the government to intervene with finesse in, and that would be things like um, a lot of the unemployment programs, it's been hard to calibrate them in such a way that you you are making sure that people who lost their jobs can still pay their bills and um, still still eat and pay rent, but that you are not actually paying people more to quit their jobs in essential services and just stay home. It's really hard to design an unemployment program that accomplishes both of those objectives, and um, it should be hard. Like this is this is the kind of crisis that we have not faced in a very very long time. So of course we're bad at it at first, but the the long term effect of of that is that a lot of businesses will shut down, and they won't. Those businesses won't come back. Other companies may come back eventually, but it'll take a lot longer. So that gets you closer to an L shape or bathtub recovery where it's, there's this huge drop and then there's this long painful grind where unemployment stays high for a long time there's this ever-shifting mix of policies and refinements and backtracking and um, and meanwhile people are still dying and then eventually things somehow get sorted out and return to some sort of normal but if you look at 2008 it was a really long time before things reached any kind of normal like housing prices took years to bottom after the crash unemployment was still elevated five years after the crash it took a really long time for things to get to what we think of as a normal steady state but the market recovered a lot faster so if you look at your economic history from just an asset price lens then you'd expect a quicker recovery but a lot of that is because the market is less representative of the broader economy in part because the companies that are the biggest contributors to market cap are just so well run that, um, that they are taking over the world. Yeah, I'm, I'm sitting here in Houston and uh, I am uh, not expecting a V recovery here in town uh, after after what happened yesterday. So, uh, uh, you know, I'm hoping that we do recover relatively quickly, but I'm, I'm definitely not expecting a V recovery. Yeah, I would say the oil, the oil case is actually an interesting it's a key study in, um, in what we were discussing earlier with the Fed, where the it's it's possible to think about these abstract things like the availability of credit and whether asset prices are going up or down, but you quickly run into these practical questions. So 
Fed is very good about very good at bailing out fixed income capital markets, very bad at bailing out the local plumber. And um, in the same way, the, the oil market is really, really good at pricing oil in normal circumstances. But oil is, um, if you buy oil futures, you are both um, committing to, like you're, you're committing to get the product, which means you're committing to keep it. So um, that is, that's another case where there was a, a weird short squeeze and something people didn't expect to be short squeezable. So it was, it was not driven by just a drop in demand, but was more driven by a shortage of storage. Storage. Yeah, and if you look at the future strip, so you look at futures contracts a couple of months out, they they do show much more normal values. If you look at um, Brent crude versus WTI, you do see much more normal values. It's still way way down, and um, you if even even at twenty, that's a, a very surprising number. Negative um, thirty seven is obviously a completely different level of surprising. But um, it does seem like a lot of that is because the, the abstractions of finance collide with the actual logistics of oil is a physical thing. It takes up a certain volume and uh, there's only so much only so much space where you can put it. I actually just ran the numbers this morning because I was um, I was wondering if the if the negative price is sufficiently low that it's actually worth it to risk getting fined for dumping it somewhere. And um, the answer is no, in case you <laughs> don't, don't run out and do it without running your numbers first. But um, the BP oil spill cost roughly $13,000 in fines per barrel. So it has a long way to fall before we can just dump it in the Gulf. Um, not that we should, but a long way to fall before um, a completely amoral, profit-motivated person would choose to do that. So so now it looks like uh, there, there will just be somehow very swift and severe production cuts, or we'll find some way to actually start burning oil again. Yeah, and I think that I think what I saw this morning was that the futures for June are are back up to about thirty dollars. I mean, that's a certainly not back to where we were at the beginning of the year, but that's getting close to that um, break even point for for producers where they can almost be making money. So it's not nearly as bleak of a situation but in the meantime you're going to have so many small service providers that are going to just liquidate they're going to go out of business but the the larger companies are, are certainly have the means to to withstand this yeah that's that is um that is true that there's within the oil industry and within the energy industry generally there is this whole cohort of people with just insanely high risk tolerance and um at the end of every cycle, a lot of those people end up getting wiped out. But then as soon as things look even remotely safe, somebody is going to get really excited about the possibility of getting rich again and they will immediately get back in business. So it is, um, it's cyclical just because of the nature of oil prices where there's um, extreme inelasticity and you also have weird geopolitical factors and uh, you also have operating risk. But then it's even more volatile than it intrinsically should be because you also have just a culture of very high risk tolerance. And actually, energy is an mm. interesting uh, piece of the inflation-deflation piece because energy, while it's not, it's it's a huge contributor to inflation volatility. It is a less big contributor to overall inflation. And there's been this interesting dynamic due to fracking, where historically oil prices were a sort of um, break on the U.S. economy where if oil prices went up, gas prices went up, so people um, and people can't really choose to drive less. Like you, you could decide not to take a road trip, but it's not like you decide to stop driving to and from work. 
So um, it, it basically amounted to a tax. And there's, um, there's been this shift where now the supply, or now circa last year, the supply of oil was a lot more elastic because frackers were able to very quickly scale up production and very quickly raise money. And that actually put something of a lid on inflation, but only as long as investors had a huge appetite for high yield bonds issued by energy companies. So now we actually have this regime where um, energy prices should be less stable going forward, not just because of these swings in demand, but because there are fewer swings in supply. All right. So uh, I think to close this out, we're going to go with our standard question, which is we ask uh, the guest to give us a, uh, a film or TV show related to the discussion that they really like. So there's there's actually a lot of great movies out there about trading and investing or whatever. But uh, is there is there an investing movie uh, that is your favorite? Or a movie um, about Oh man, this is this is a hard question. A because I haven't seen all that many movies in my life, and B because there are there are different movies that perfectly capture different aspects of the situation. Like I think the movie that will make you feel the most optimistic is Margin Call because it is um, it'll make you feel optimistic the way a, a supernatural horror movie will make you feel optimistic, where it shows you something that is really scary and probably cannot happen. So Margin Call is all about the world very quickly ending because markets crash. Nobody knows what's going on. Everybody's trying to liquidate as quickly as possible. Everyone gets incredibly deeply cynical about everything they do, both on that day at that time and throughout their entire careers. But um, the, the current approach that central banks have is basically designed to avoid that kind of scenario. So if you want to feel really good about the future, watch Margin Call and realize that it's now fiction. I, I have I have seen Margin Call and it is a great movie. And I also have, uh, it does seem to be uh, a fan favorite among people who are actually involved in the market. Uh, but so, I, I mean, when you say it, it couldn't happen, it, the movie Margin Call is about the 2009 financial crisis, right? So you're, I mean, you're saying that there is a, a uh, obviously, the, the 2009 financial crisis ha happened. So th there's something else in the movie that, that uh, you think is unrealistic, I guess? or No, what I'm saying is that um, the, the, the central banks have reacted to the scenario that that movie portrays. And they, that is the exact thing that they want to make sure never happens again. Okay. So right. it's, it's optimistic in the sense that you can watch that. You could say, okay, that actually sounds really freaky and disturbing. And these people are clearly at their absolute emotional limits. And at least that's not exactly what's happening right now. At least the, the bad things are some other thing. And this specific problem, which could have, could have been happening right now, like we could have a case where large banks are de facto insolvent, where the smartest financial people you know are going from ATM to ATM and withdrawing the max every time they can. And that <laughs> kind of thing did happen in 2008 a little bit. Those people probably felt silly afterwards, but they felt very savvy at the time. Um, that that specific scenario doesn't doesn't really seem to happen. Um, so yeah, we're that part that sort of theoretical um, financial construct layer on top of the economy is actually doing fine. And the thing we have to hope for is that our ability to technocratically 
to technocratically um, manage that very abstract part of the world filters down to the parts of the real world that it actually represents. So actual people with actual normal jobs whose balance sheets do not have, you know, three commas in the in them. Um, that like if we can if we can make sure that what is good for Goldman Sachs somehow ends up being good for the rest of the country, then that's really good news because we've actually we've nailed the part of dealing with a crisis that is making sure big banks do not go insolvent and that nobody worries that they will. All right. Uh, well, so thank you very much for joining us today, Bern. Anytime. Great to be here. And as a reminder, diff, D-I-F-F.substack.com. Check it out. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe, leave favorable reviews, and tell your friends to tune in to the Urbane Cowboys.